welcome to the Edgerton Life podcast. I'm Jess Lampy, and today I am here talking with Jared. Jared, hello. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for taking time out to join me. I really appreciate it. So I'm going to start from the very beginning. How did you get to know Andy? Truth is, I'm not really sure is like the bottom line about how I got to know Andy. So um, I was working at 1776 for a company called Typing Club slash Ed Club. Ed Club was sort of the umbrella company. And uh, I was working alongside one of my best friends, Tommy Luganville, who was recently on the podcast. And basically, it was a shared office space. They had, you know, people come in every once in a while and do some programming, which was pretty cool. But Tommy and I would sit at this desk in the middle of sort of this open office space and um, Andy would just show up on random days and walk around, schmooze and talk to whoever as, as he does. That's how we met and sort of started to get to know each other, talk to us about random things. And before you knew it, we were, we were close friends, the three of us. So. Yeah, as you'd mentioned, I recently met Tommy and and talked through. It sounded like... Did you have the same impression that Tommy did about Andy, where he was just this... Uh, did you know where he came from? <laughs> no, no, not at all. And that was one of the things that I really loved about him, was that we didn't really care where he came from. It was just clear that he was sort of a kindred spirit between the three of us, and that we just hit it off. He would come and we sort of use each other as excuses to sit there and talk shop and talk about literally anything that would come up on our minds and just sort of riff off each other. We'd have this conversation, he'd sort of stop in and then disappear and we would just be like, we don't know what that was, but it was great and we're just going to kind of accept it for what it is and not really ask too many questions. So yes, Tommy and I definitely have a similar outlook on uh, what he was doing at 1776, which is still sort of questionable. And we, we love that about, about him. <laughs> I love that. I love that description of it uh, as being questionable. Did you keep in touch with Andy over the years? Oh, absolutely. So we probably met in 2014, I want to say 2014, 2015. And he would come in and like I said, just kind of schmooze around and I didn't really know anything about him or what he had done. I think he worked at Gallup for a little bit and did some stuff maybe for Twitter and it was all very unclear about, you know, his past. Like if I, I never saw his resume and I can only imagine what was on it. But in the beginning especially, I wasn't sure what to really think about him as far as like how straightforward he was about his history, let's say. And then over the years, especially after he got sick, we ended up getting a lot closer. I can talk a little bit more about that. And we really stayed in close touch until pretty much the, pretty much the end. Um, you know, he, he moved home to Kansas City, and we would, at the, at the time, I was sort of working remotely and could go on random adventures with him during the day. So whenever he was in town, he would sort of call me and say, let's do this random thing. And me and him would go off on these adventures. You know, if, when I describe them, they're probably not going to be adventures. It was like going to random restaurants nearby or just talking to random people. With Andy, the smallest task or like the most simple things seemed like always seemed like an adventure. So um, we did, you know, we did stay in touch and 
I was lucky enough to sort of have this weird relationship with him where he would just kind of call me and say, hey, I'm going to be in town like next week. Are you around? And, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday, we would meet up and just walk around D.C. and go to random restaurants. And I was happy to sort of be his person that he would lean on while uh, he was between different appointments that he had, let's say. (laughs) So that was sort of our personal relationship. When he was instigating adventures, was he picking the destinations or? Always, yes. Yes. Always. I I always just let him do his thing and would just sort of show up and we would be, you know, at at Le Diplomat on one day and then we would go to like a random Ethiopian restaurant that no one had ever heard of another day that was like his favorite haunt Ethiopian place. (laughs) Uh, And that was sort of the way that it went. I, I never, there was no use in trying to direct the adventure because it was just going to go wherever he wanted it to go anyway. So I just would show up and we would do our thing basically. Other than the adventures you were going on, uh, you got to know him a bit better during this time period. How were you getting to know him better through these adventures? So it wasn't even about the, these sort of quote unquote adventures. Right. And again, they're really only adventures because it was with him and you just never knew what was going to come out of his mouth next or like who he would talk to and say random things to but it really the root of it is that I remember when he called me and let me know that he was that he was sick and you know that it was pancreatic cancer and at the time I was actually a little surprised that he called me to let me know because at that point we were you know semi-close but it wasn't like we talked on a daily basis or anything like that and then later on maybe because I was in my master's program. And so I was like up late at night and he would just write me on Facebook um, late at night and say, hey, let's do a FaceTime chat or whatever, because he was awake due to his medications really. And we would just like hop on video calls. But when he first told me that he was sick, you know, it really resonated with me because my grandfather actually passed away from pancreatic cancer as well. And that was when I was 11. So I really understood how serious the diagnosis was and just felt like this guy was so young and, you know, such an interesting background and was really from the beginning very determined to to fight it and learn as much about it as he could. And I knew that he would need support from the people around him and that you know, I sort of had some, I don't want to say skin in the game, but just I, I felt for him because I, I knew what it was like for people around him to go through it and what even, you know, not firsthand what it was like for him, but just the struggle that was ahead. And so I made sure to be in touch as much as possible and reach out and just try to be supportive when I could be. And that was sort of the beginning of us becoming closer during his sickness he moved from DC home and then he would come to DC for different things. And we would meet up and I would go like for a little while, he was staying with a family and then I would go out to, I think it was in Bethesda or somewhere and and meet him and met his family. And we really got close in that time. And I got to know them a little bit as well. And that was sort of how our relationship flourished over the years in a weird way, almost because of his sickness. I completely understand, and I felt like I had a similar situation. I had moved back to the States. I had a call from him out of the blue randomly reconnecting once. And then I think, like, mm-hmm. 
maybe like the second or third time later that he connected, it was after he'd gotten the diagnosis. And certainly he, he was very active in reaching out and having conversations. I don't know if it was because of the diagnosis that he became more adamant about maintaining these relationships, but he, he certainly mm -hmm. was very active during that time. Did you find him when he was reaching out? What was his state of mind? Was he optimistic? Was he looking to do new things? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would say, yeah. I mean, I would say he was very optimistic and very just driven to learn as much as possible and to really, you know, to beat this thing. He, he had a firm grasp of statistics and knew sort of what he was up against. But I remember... Um, the first year that he had organized the walk for pancreatic cancer um, with his family, and I, I went with him. I was living in D.C. at the time, and we did the walk, and he was talking about statistics and just sort of the chances of survival and how he was really upset about the way that they framed the statistics about the survival rate. I forget the statistics off, offhand, but it's something like 95% of people end up passing away from pancreatic cancer or something like that and he was sort of like you know why don't they frame it in like five percent of people survive and and make it sort of a you know positive bend on these statistics because it really makes a difference in the way that you think about it and the way that you sort of approach the disease and him and i sort of shared the belief that your mindset really made a difference about how what the outcome would be and how you just went through the treatment and the, the experience as a whole and so I would say he was very positive even to the very end and not just positive for himself but he was determined to spread the word about this disease and how horrible it was and to really shed light on what it was like to go through the experience and today I was looking through his old posts and stuff just to try to you know remember small details because it's been a, a few years at this point and he, you know, really showcased himself going through this, this whole process was people taking pictures of him. I think he had a photographer like following him around at some point, which is, you know, just who, who wants to showcase themselves going through this. Um, and he was very adamant about being strong, not just for himself, but for his kids and his family. And clearly all of the people that whose lives he's touched over the years to show what it can be like to go through this sort of process and try to find a, a cure, a way, a way for people to, for those statistics to not be true anymore, to improve them. Um, so that was sort of my, my key takeaways from his experience. And from the beginning, he was very determined to learn as much as possible as well. I remember him saying with a lot of bravado that he, he was talking about the number of notebooks he had with details on this and and how much he'd learned and how much he had to teach himself. He definitely wore that as a badge of honor, I felt like. Absolutely, absolutely. And his experience was pretty wild. I mean, I was looking through his old posts and I completely forgot that his insurance dropped him for a little bit. It was, it was in a time of turmoil as far as what was gonna happen next with the ACA. And, and I guess they dropped him because of his pre-existing condition. And, he was, uh, you know, he had to advocate for himself. And I, I remember talking to him a few times and, and him basically just saying, I know how to read this stuff and I have the time to go through and read all these contracts and make sure, you know, and advocate for myself, basically. If I was older and I was confused as it is, I don't know how I would 
advocate for myself. And he really was very adamant about talking about what other people in his shoes in a more, I guess, tip, you know, quote unquote, typical situation would have been because he was so young. Most of the people that had that he sort of encountered throughout his sickness were a lot older than him. Like when he would go and get treatment, he would be like the youngest person in the room interacting with these people. So that was a big takeaway away as well was it wasn't just about him. It was about helping other people through shining a light on what he was going through and, you know, being an advocate for people who are sick in general. So during this time period when you were working with him and getting to know him better, I'm really curious, did he mention the idea for this podcast at all? So he did kind of in the last couple of months, he, or I'd say the last like three to six months, he had all of these entrepreneurial ideas. So many that I don't remember most of them. Cause it, I just sort of at that point was like, sure, Andy, like make it happen and I'll be there kind of a thing, you know? Um, and one of the ideas was, was about this podcast and I think he had made another one where he had written some things for his children as well and you know really wanted that to be the focus so I had heard about it a little bit but didn't really know what the the progress was on it wait I'm curious he was going to create a second podcast that was writings to his children yeah I don't know if it was a podcast or if he was creating a journal or an audio book or something but he was really you know concerned with making sure that his his kids knew who he was and some of the things that he was thinking about and some of his learnings or some of his musings from over the years and his experience you know his kids were always the big topic of conversation when we would talk just as far as you know that was a big a big driver for him obviously Definitely. I, I'm so delighted to hear that. I don't know about you. I personally, I only have like the mental bandwidth to write like three things that I'm going to try to get done in a given day. I love that he was simultaneously noodling around doing multiple audio projects while juggling chemo, while juggling every other initiative that he was starting at that time. <laughs> yeah, it was just an exhaustive list of things that he was thinking about and it was sort of just like a stream of consciousness that I think he kept track of kind of a thing and would go back to and and iterate on he was really an entrepreneurial spirit and I like my friend Tommy is is like that in a similar vein so I think that was their connection and my connection to them was sort of trying to ground their ideas a little bit more and play play devil's advocate sometimes but Andy didn't want to have anything to do with the devil's advocate he was like no no we'll, we'll figure it out just like run with me here run with me here just like you know keep going so uh you know you just kind of got to like I said before you just had to kind of go with him and run with whatever was going on and even if you knew in the back of your head like you know I don't think this is ever really going to work <laughs> <laughs> So you were on the list of people to be on the podcast. Did he talk with you then in greater detail about what he wanted to talk with you about? No, he didn't. He didn't at all. I just figured we would get on and, you know, hoped that we would have a conversation that would be buried somewhere because I was afraid of what he might end up asking me. But uh, he, no, he didn't. He just said, you know, this is a project that I'm thinking about doing. You know, that was kind of it. I don't think he even really mentioned to me that I would be on the list if I remember correctly but he 
just you know talked about the idea one one of the many ideas that we that we discussed so did he mention at all what kind of ideas he wanted to talk about with you or was that even played close to the chest uh i mean it was a little bit close to the chest but different fundraising ideas different ideas about how we would bring attention to the struggle and to pancreatic cancer you know to fundraise for research and you know i think at some point he was talking about a, a production company of some kind that would just basically be whatever he wanted it to be at the time. He would just wake up and say, oh, today I feel like making a video about this and we would make that video. You know, how many of his ideas had legs as far as that's concerned, I'm not sure. But with Andy, like, you know, at that point I had been through the ring a little bit as far as talking to people who would promise connections or, you know, introductions or who had an idea that they said was going to be the next million dollar thing. And when I first met Andy, I was sort of like, I like this guy. He's really funny and fun to be around, but whether the things that he says were real or not, I didn't know. But then as, as we sort of got closer and, and he would post things, like he put me in touch with a few of his friends that, um, that were doing some consulting in the field that I'm in. And he said, Oh, I, I know these people. And then I was like, Oh, that'd be great if you could put me in touch. And I sort of figured it would never happen. And then like the next day I was having lunch with one of these people and we've been in, we've been in touch ever, ever since then. Maddie Grant, who, who's a consultant that does culture work in, in organizations. And I, I study organizational psychology and that was really the beginning of my journey in this field. And she really has served as a mentor to me with her partner, uh, Jamie Nader. And really I met her through Andy. And at, at the time they had just come out with a new book that was all about millennials at work and how millennials are gonna be taking over. And he, Andy had written, had posted one of their articles on his LinkedIn. And I reached out and said, oh, this seems really up my alley. You know, could you put us in touch figuring We'll see what happens. You never know. And then the next thing you know, again, I was having lunch with her and we've been in touch ever since. So slowly he really revealed that he was pretty legit. He really backed up his words with actions and knew a lot of very, very interesting people, which we've seen on this podcast. And really, we've only scratched the surface. We're talking about 10 people within his sphere of influence or whatever. But, you know, for example, one of the adventures was... I think it was his birthday party, um, probably the year before he passed away, some kind of a party. When he would come to D.C., he would stay with one of his friends, his name is Juan, and Juan would, like, house it for people. And one day, Andy was like, hey, come to my birthday party. It's going to be at this house that I stay at. And it was this neighborhood that was sort of behind Georgetown that I had never heard of and don't remember the name of, but it was very random. And I'd, you know, been living in D.C. for for two years at that point and hadn't heard of it. I took an Uber, showed up, and it was the most beautiful house I had ever seen. It was almost like Japanese style house where in the center of the house, there was a courtyard and the rooms went like around it and each room had a glass wall that like looked into the courtyard. So it was like a large house on one level, but it was sort of spread out. I just showed up and it was like this guy, Juan, who was the guy who was, you know, house sitting and 
people would come in and Andy wasn't there for the first hour and a half that I was there, by the way. And I was probably 10, 15 years younger than anybody else that was there. So in the beginning, it was like a little bit awkward. I didn't know anybody. And I was just sort of in this random person's house that Andy just kind of plopped me into. And I didn't know where I was or who the people even were that I was hanging out with. And it turned out that they were all like incredibly interesting people doing crazy work for the World Bank and for the State Department and for, you know, all of these different places that I was sort of like, yeah, see, I knew Andy he had some connections that were a little bit uh, under the radar, let's say. Um, and that's just a, a pretty good example of like random places that I would find myself in because of him. So, yeah, that was kind of my experience. I don't even remember what the question was that brought me to you know this house in the middle of nowhere but that's sort of how he worked too we'd (laughs) we'd start with the we would start with you know a premise and then next thing you know we'd be like what are we talking about again (laughs) oh yeah okay let's get back on that thing so uh you know pretty pretty telling (laughs) very true very true yeah, now that I'm looking back on it, I, I'm not exactly sure what I asked to get to where we are now, but I'm in awe of uh, the experience and the story of that. That seems very much like a stealth Andy maneuver to just kind of be like, oh, yeah, and then this is kind of exactly. happening. And then he got two hours later and everyone was just like, you know, he was the center of attention and just lit up the room. But at that point, everybody was already friends. So it was just like, oh, hey, hey, Andy, like. Thanks for coming to your own party. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wait, so he showed up late to his own birthday. Oh, yeah. So he told me to get there, let's say, at 8 o'clock, and he showed up at 9.30, and I was didn't know anybody else. I went literally by myself with not, without knowing anybody that was there. And <laughs> the next thing you know, people are just like, oh, how do you know it? Everyone asked each other, how do you know Andy? And the answers were came from all over the place. So uh, we just sort of sat there and looked at each other and had – you know, just had a couple of drinks and we're like, all right, this is the deal. He's not here yet. So we might as well have fun without him until he gets here. And uh, long and behold, he showed up an hour and a half late. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did he stay after he got there an hour and a half late? I, that's a great question. I, I don't know because I think I left uh, probably an hour after that. But he knew how to get, have a good time no matter no matter where he was. So I'm sure he was there for a little while. <laughs> So what are you up to now? So part of the joy of this is I, I actually get to meet everybody, and I, I don't really know people from the start. Um, what are you doing? Yeah, so I am calling you right now from my little courtyard in New York City in Greenwich Village. I'm a PhD student at Hofstra University. I, I'm studying organizational psychology and specifically studying flow at work. So this is how to get into the zone. Andy and I actually talked about this a lot because he was clearly high in what's called flow proneness, which is just your, your your sort of proneness for getting into flow, how frequently you typically get into it. He just would get into that zone and go off and do his thing, and the next thing you know, you're in a random house in the middle of nowhere, right? So uh, <laughs> we, we had long conversations about this, and especially about – and we talked about mindfulness a lot, too. He really got into meditation – after he got sick, and that was something that I had been studying for a long time and had been practicing since I was, actually since a little bit after my grandfather passed away from pancreatic cancer as well, I got into this. So I think there might be a, you know, a subconscious connection there. But yeah, so I'm, I'm a PhD student. That's what I'm studying is getting into flow at work. And then I also um, do consulting. I, I started a consulting firm called The Flow Group. 
and I basically help people and organizations and teams to to be happy, healthy, and productive at work. And that's that's kind of what I do. I I, I teach as well at at Hofstra and uh, a master's class at the CUNY School of Professional Studies here in Manhattan. That's my life right now. <laughs> That's very exciting. I know that as a PhD student, you're probably putting a lot of research and, and there's a lot of careful analysis that's going into to this topic. So I by no means want to diminish the amount of work you're doing, but I am curious, actually very specifically, I'm curious, is it possibly a person who's prone to flow states with just being social with people? I would say yes, that getting into flow during social interactions is certainly a thing. There's a lot of research in regards to like teams and sports and flow and things like that. So I would say yes. Um, it depends on the situation, obviously. But in Andy's case, I would say yes, that being with other people and speaking with people and being in social situations definitely put him in that in that place and I can I can relate to that as well. That's cool. My understanding of flow state was always described to me uh, in a tech world, very coding focused kind of way where people describe flow state as you get to that point, your fingers are flying and you're fixing bugs and you're working on the feature and implementing it. Right. You had said that uh, Andy reminded you very much of somebody who goes into a flow state. That was different to me because I had always thought of it as this very solitary thing. And I always think of him as a very extroverted individual. Sure, sure. So first of all, I think that you're right, that a lot of the perception of flow and a lot of the research on flow pretty much shows that flow is induced most of the time in a individualized, solitary state like you're talking about. So the, the things that really induce flow or the, the requirements of flow include having clear goals, a balance of challenge and skill and feedback. And part of it also is that you're very concentrated and you block out distractions. So I think a lot of times being in situations where there are a lot of people around you often take you out of flow because you're not able to block out those distractions. But there is also this idea of team flow where people get into flow together because oftentimes they're working on a goal that is above them that they're all need to they all need to work in collaboration to achieve and in that case it's it's my thought my hypothesis based on the research that basically people turn other people from a distraction to something that is needed in order to get the job done and then they're able to get into flow with other people. That makes sense. So if you classify as somebody as if you classify somebody as a distraction in your mind, then you block them out and you are not able to get into flow because they're distracting you. But if they're part of the solution, then I think that or part of the scenario that you're in that's inducing flow for you, then flow becomes possible with other people, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I, I think in Andy's case, being in conversation itself put him in flow. And in order to be in a conversation, it has to be a two-sided event. Although with, you know, with Andy, he could go off on his own for, for hours as well. But he really didn't care about what people's responses were and how people reacted to him. And so in that case, I think other people are part of the situation and part of thing that gets you into flow. And so it becomes possible to be in flow with other people. 
That's really cool. First off, thank you so much for entertaining my question on that topic because I recognize, like, as your area of expertise, I'm probably I'm only I'm only scratching the surface on it. I, I think that's like a really cool metaphor for talking about Andy. Uh, actually, a, a better lens to kind of understand the way he operates. Well, I think I think it's true, and I and I really don't think that your question actually belittles the the theory at all because it's one of the most understudied parts of of flow is is group flow and how how it can be achieved with other people because it is necessary to be you know alone in your office and have those headphones on and really blocking out other people and a, a big question moving forward is how can we get into flow together rather than as individuals and is that even something that we that we want because there's, there's a few downsides to flow as well that can occur but I think Andy is a good example of being able to be in flow with other people and to get other people in flow around the ideas that he's exploring, let's say. So, so long as, as someone who has Andy's talents is uh, like Andy working towards a force for good, you can, you can get a group of people to a good destination. Right. I, I think that there is also some research about leadership skills and flow and how leaders can help their subordinates or, or people around them to get into flow as well. And so in this case, I think Andy was, was good at that. And part of it is, you know, being what's called a transformational leader where you really take people's wants and needs into account and then helping them to set goals that, that push their growth and that are relevant to them and, and making sure that they have something to strive for. I think he was good at that. I think he was good at at really understanding who you were and what you wanted and helping you to try to get to that place with, with whatever resources he could. That's interesting because uh, I, <laughs> I felt like I always had action items following a conversation with him, as it were. Yeah. But he was never an individual that struck me as doing that very artificially or like, let's draft up a life plan and let's get you from here to there. But somehow you, he was doing that. <laughs> totally. And, and yeah, I, I agree that after a conversation with him, there would always be action items. I think my differentiator was how much I was going to actually act on them based on our conversations. Like, cool, Andy. Like, yeah, I'll be on that. And then the next conversation, he'd be on a whole other page that had nothing to do with what we talked about the last time. So I was like, I'm glad I didn't, I'm glad I didn't do this because you probably don't even remember talking about this. So let's go on to the next thing, you know? Um, but that was his mind. It was, it was really always working on multiple problems at a time, but at a, a rapid fire pace and it, catching up with him was impossible. So I, I just always, it's almost like I would take snapshots of where he was, right? And it'd be like, I, I wouldn't follow up with him day to day, but it'd be like a month later and I'd be like, oh, so where are you on this thing? And he'd be like, oh, well, that's been over for, you know, three weeks already. I'm on to this next thing. And like, let's talk about that instead. And we would just like move on to the next, to the next idea. Um, and so it was just always fun. You know, I think that was always the thing was he tried to have fun no matter what. No matter the situation, he made the, the best of it and would try to have fun as much as possible. So if you could catch up and, and sort of be on his level and accept whatever was going to happen for what it for what it was, then it was always a great experience with him. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, Jared, I, I want to be mindful of, of your time. I notice I've got, we're about six minutes left. Anything else you wanted to talk about or, or discuss? I, I recognize this format 
really puts you on the spot, but I don't know if there's anything you wanted to share. I would just share, again, the positive mindset that he had and the tenacity and, and the drive that he had to continue on and to have the best outlook on the situation no matter what was always inspiring. And the fact that he um, kept up with so many people and put so much energy and I probably, you know, got energy too from, from everybody um, and was, and was very transparent throughout the whole process was really, was really something to, to witness and his growth. I really think he grew a lot through the process. He was a different person than I had met originally. I think I, I think he really was able to like if we're thinking about the idea of flow and you know getting into flow and being sort of this hustler in a good way, just like someone who would hustle hard and would go after whatever he wanted at the time. I think that can get very tiring. And when he got sick, he started working on the other side of himself, which was more about being in the moment and being mindful and and really reflecting on things and trying to help other people. Um, that was also really interesting to see as well. I, I think I was in a weird situation where we really didn't have many contacts in common. So it was almost like we could confide in each other about our lives and what was going on because we knew that uh, we knew that nobody in either of our lives would be would hear about anything that we talked about in our own sort of competence. And again, because I was this, I was doing my master's at that point and I was up late, he would call me and just talk to me about what he was going through and how, what the different treatments were doing to him. And, and uh, I think a lot of people may have been not put off, but just intimidated by that. But because again, I, I had lived through a, a family member going through, you know, a similar situation. It, it didn't, really phase me in that way. So I feel lucky that I was able to talk with him about all of those things and, and hear what he was going on. And, and some of the key takeaways were the things that he really went, just like didn't care about anymore. Like politics in DC was such a big thing. And we were, we were there to the elections. And I remember having dinner with him one day and starting to go into politics a little bit and him just being sort of like, you know, that doesn't matter. Like none the, this political talk, this is sort of not uh, affecting us on a day-to-day level in this way or as far, or, and a lot of people get sucked into this, these trivial, not that politics and that is trivial, but sort of like getting into arguments about certain things that really matter at, at this higher level that doesn't affect each of us individually didn't make sense to him at a certain point. He just didn't want to get into it and just wanted to focus on talking about things that were interesting to him and that could really, I guess, have action items on a person-to-person basis. And that really stuck with me, you know, really focusing on the things that that really matter and that we care about and, and that refocusing and growth that I saw from him over the years was, was really inspiring. I like that. It's kind of fascinating to think that your description of that process being something that uh, he grew through, I think is very true. 
Uh, I know it's very sad to describe kind of the end of things as something like typically it seems like something that tears you down, but in some ways it was kind of allowing him to become something bigger than what he was. I, I agree. And I do, I think he was the perfect person. Absolutely not. I think he was definitely, you know, a, a flawed person like everybody else. And I think he really worked on what those flaws were in his own way over the years that he was sick. And I think especially towards the end, he kind of knew what was going to happen. And he could have easily gotten really negative at the end and really, I don't want to say ruined everything, but just, you know, his whole MO was being positive and trying to have hope and all of that. And I think to the end, he still showed that that's, that's still possible, even when you kind of have an idea about, you know, that this was really going to be the end for him and to really show other people how to live through something like this to the very, very end and be really transparent about the whole thing for the entire process, um, which a lot of people very understandably don't want to be as open about this. And even in the beginning of getting sick and looking for some, and all of that, um, when, when things sort of come to a head, when things get worse, people withdraw and, and want to just be insular which is, again, completely understandable, and everyone goes through things in their own way, but he really was set on letting everybody know what was really going on and not really sugarcoating things. If you go through his his Facebook and his LinkedIn, he was very transparent about everything, and that was inspiring as well. Um, and, you know, I hope that and his memory can provide that kind of support to people who are going through something similar that you really can have a positive attitude and and that um, it makes a big difference to you and the people around you and the people who are left after you're gone. So that was really inspiring and touching to see. It absolutely was. Jared, uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to connect with me. It's been wonderful to meet you, wonderful to meet Andy more through you, and I'm looking forward to hearing about uh, everything else that you are up to in the near future. Thank you so much, and thank you for doing this. I think it's an incredible project that is really only an Andy thing. That's very Andy, and I love it. I love listening to the different people that come on, and I uh, really reminds me i hear things that people say and reminds me of little things that we did and talked about and it's really wonderful so thank you for putting this work in and for putting putting these out there i really appreciate that and it's it's my pleasure great well thank you so much for having me and i look forward to being in touch all right cheers thanks jared all right thank you bye Bye bye-bye